Welcome to another edition of the Rural Perspectives Podcast. I'm your host, Adam Albrick, and today we're exploring the world of transportation and what that exactly means for farmers, ranchers, agribusinesses, and of course, rural residents. Joining us is Mike Steenhook, who serves as the Executive Director of the Soy Transportation Coalition. Welcome, Mike. Hey, it's good to be with you. Thanks for having me. So there are many different areas in which we can kind of start this thing off, but I figured why don't we just take a look at what the current state of rural infrastructure is. So Mike, if you could get us started by just kind of giving us a pretty high level view of of where we're sitting today. I think one of the big problems confronting our rural infrastructure is that we tend to allow in this country the urban perspective to overwhelm and dominate the overall discussion. And it's not just related to infrastructure, but we see this kind of urban bias manifest itself in a lot of other issues as well. But certainly transportation is a, is a good example of that. And when you talk to policymakers and you ask the question, do we have a transportation problem in this country? The answer almost unanimously is yes. The follow-up question is, how is that challenge evident to you and they often point to things like long commute times urban congestion they don't often talk about the inefficiencies of moving freight particularly that freight that originates in rural america and you really need to have it's not an either or kind of approach you need to have a both approach so much of the freight that we see transiting our interstate highway system our federal highway system our state highways Um, they originate on these rural roads and bridges that ultimately funnel that freight onto that, you know, more the, that busier part of our overall network. So we, we have this kind of problem with perspective and a problem with priorities. And we really need to make sure that we're, we're including that rural perspective as well. Um, we have a, a, a challenge and that is with a lot of these components of our rural infrastructure, the needs are quite extreme, but yet the funding to accommodate it is stagnant or on the decline. And a lot of this, these funding formulas are based on the population or the number of taxpayers in rural communities. And as we know that the number of people in rural communities continues to decline. And so that, that certainly makes it more difficult to maintain and improve that, that infrastructure. But yet, we're still, farmers are still growing as much, if not more, um, on their farms than they were years ago. So kind of the, the, the demand is on the increase, but then the, the funding to accommodate it is stagnant or on the decrease. And that's kind of a problem that we see throughout our multimodal system, particularly in, in when it comes to our rural roads and bridges. So we have a lot of challenges. Um, the, the reality is the reason why farmers located in the middle of the United States are able to be so engaged in the international marketplace, despite the fact that they're so far removed, hundreds, if not thousands of miles removed from our coastal regions, is that we've got this multimodal transportation system that can connect supply with ultimately with demand whether it's domestic or even halfway around the world. So we have to maintain that transportation system if we're going to remain this international enterprise, if agriculture has this design to remain that. 
Now, according to the U.S. Department of Transportation, 19% of American population lives within rural areas, and yet 68% of the nation's total lane miles are outside of urban centers. So that really speaks to what you were just talking about. That's a lot of miles of road to maintain, isn't it? It, it certainly is, and and you know the yeah, a lot of it was was kind of based on you know this early 20th century kind of model for rural America. And, you know, when, you know, we've got a, a 21st century industry, i.e. agriculture using this kind of, in many respects, an early 20th century rural infrastructure. And a lot of these roads, a lot of these bridges were not designed with, you know, the kind of machinery that's used, the, the volume that's transported on these semis, uh, the volume that's produced on on the farm and, and the number of trips that's required to transport product from the farm to the delivery location or for the from the local elevator to the processor. So, um, so many other when you think about so many other areas in agriculture that has evolved uh, with the industry, like seed technology, like harvesting equipment, like yeah, how we market soybeans. There's just a, been a real degree of sophistication that has evolved throughout the industry. But when you juxtapose modern agriculture with our rural infrastructure, there still is quite a disconnect. And we really need to make sure that we are attentive to that rural infrastructure to bring it up to speed so that you know farmers and can compete, rural America can thrive. Every now and then, uh, you'll see like test strips along highways or freeways. I'm just testing out the different elements and, and all of that. Are you familiar with any research? You, you mentioned that a lot of our roads and bridges and things like that were designed many years ago, but obviously there's been more, there's more and more research being done now. Are you very familiar with that? What would a 21st century road system look like to you? Well, we need to, you know, certainly make sure that the that it's built and maintained to a, an increasingly high engineering standard um you know one of the things that you know we really try to underscore um you know clearly it has to be a safe system it has to be able to has to be able to accommodate and withstand the volume that that it's being asked to to hold but one of the things that we really try to underscore is that as tempting as it is to just fixate on government providing more money, we have to be realistic. And if we're going to pin our hopes on the federal government or the state government or even local government writing a bigger check, we're going to be a very disappointed group of people. We need to be, you know, when we're talking about a, a an infrastructure that is compatible with modern agriculture and the current state of affairs in rural America, you know, sustainability of that funding uh, has to be a part of that discussion. And so making sure that we're, we're, we're allowing the taxpayer dollar to stretch further, that we are um, exploring new and innovative ways of, of building and maintaining roads and bridges to increase the useful life of them, to do a better job of maintaining them. And, and assessing the conditions of it. There's a lot of, there's just a lot of opportunities to really make improvements in that area. Because, um, you know, the goal is to have a system that, number one, is safe, that's most important, but that 
is well positioned to be able to accommodate all of that freight that's being transported. Because you know, every time you have a, say, a detour, a road can be closed, a bridge can be closed. That's a that's a cost of doing business, and all of a sudden that can just make the industry less competitive. So, you really have to make sure that you know we've got that system that is you know well capitalized, well maintained but really focusing not just on the revenue side of the equation, the amount of money that federal, state, and local government provides for it, but are we embracing all of the innovations that can, re can result in us making those taxpayer dollars stretch further? So not just focusing on the revenue side, but also on the cost side. One of the biggest challenges I feel personally when it comes to maintaining great roads, at least here in the upper Midwest, is simply our climate. Mother Nature throws all sorts of different types of weather at us, Summers can hit 100 degrees and winters can bring temps well below zero. How can we possibly keep our infrastructure in good conditions, you know, when we have phenomenons and weather phenomenons like this? Yeah, you know, it's there's, uh, you know, there's a lot of a number of innovative approaches that are really designed to to address that. You know, one of the things that, you know, we've been uh, promoting within the soybean community um, at the individual state level and also at the national level is a, you know, a product that can be applied on concrete uh, that's actually made from soybean oil. So it, it, it really addresses that issue, making, the, making the, the soybean farmer more profitable, but then it also has a benefit to the, the infrastructure itself that soybean farmers and others utilize, is when you apply this concrete sealant onto uh, the con onto the, the road or the bridge, um, it can provide greater resistance for water and salt to penetrate into the concrete. And those can have real, a real detrimental impact when you have the freeze thaw cycle. And then also when salt gets into the concrete itself, it can really result in further degradation of that concrete. So that's just an example of these are the kind of things that we really need to be open to embrace um, I think we need to um, expunge from our our mindset that just doing the, the regular way of doing business in which things cost an exorbitant amount and we just simply hope that we get more money from the government to address those needs I mean clearly we need higher degrees of investment but we've got to find some of these ways to make our infrastructure more resilient. And there's a, a number of you know, products available that and approaches that can really help make sure that taxpayer dollar stretches further. That concrete sealant is a, is a really great example when it comes to the freeze and thaw cycle experience in a lot of these states and also that making it more resistant to salt. Well, I think anybody who's ever driven in a cold weather climate understands pothole season is also there and a real threat. But uh, thinking about bridges, now the, the transportation department also says about 3,300 bridges have been closed in rural areas for one reason or another. Bridge collapses don't happen very often. However, I think even in my own personal life, I was a few blocks away from the Interstate 35 bridge collapse in Minneapolis, uh, you know, 10 plus years ago. But obviously when these bridges close, they also create longer detours, which means more wear and tear on roads that might not have been designed for it. So it, it, it really drives home the point that a failure in one area can really lead to unintended consequences in other areas. 
you know, absolutely. And it's, it's easy just to, you know, for, for people who just drive automobiles, uh, a detour uh, from point A to point B, say from home to work, um, is an inconvenience and it's an irritant. And, and there's a, there's a cost associated with that. If you all of a sudden have to go out of your way, a handful of blocks to ultimately get to your destination. When you're transporting soybeans or other heavy freight using a semi, a, a detour because of a bridge being closed or weight restricted can be a significant additional cost. Um, we did some analysis um, recently that, that showed that if you just simply have three bridges in a county that say is providing access to a, a soybean and a grain receiving facility like an elevator. And if you have a weight restriction on that, on those three bridges that you know, result in detours, even if it's just a five mile detour, you know, that can easily cost the taxpayers, the affected taxpayers, those who are driving the semis easily over a hundred thousand dollars a year, uh, just because of the number of miles that have to be incurred, the cost per mile of operating these, these semis. So, there's a real cost associated with it. So, you know, and when you're, when you're dealing with a, a very tight margin industry like farming, um, it doesn't take a whole lot from, for the, the business to go from the black to being in the red. So we have to be very attentive uh, to that. So yeah, having, making sure that, um, you know, these bridges are maintained uh, at a suitable condition so that, you know, you don't want to compromise safety. But, you know, one of the projects that we've been working on that has generated some success and we would like to see it replicated throughout the country is the greater use of bridge sensing equipment, testing equipment in which you attach sensors to the underside of the bridge and then you, you allow these, these bridges to have a test load go over it and then you're capturing real data that allows the counties or the municipalities or even the state to truly understand that condition of that bridge. And then you, you're able to make a, a more definitive judgment on it. Does the bridge need to be load posted or restricted or is the bridge in adequate condition? And you can, you don't have to devote resources to remedy the problem. So that's just an example of, you know, making sure that we do a better job with the diagnosis. I mean, if, if we have a bridge problem in this country, which we do, and if resources are scarce, which they are, let's keep challenging ourselves to do a better job with the diagnosis so that you can make better decisions on maintaining you know, our bridge inventory, which ones need resources immediately, which ones need it in a few years, which ones can you safely defer for a number of years. And when you're, when you're operating in the, in the realm of scarce resources, you have to behave that way. Agriculture is heavily dependent on rail traffic to ship products grown here in the Midwest and other areas and take them to port cities. In fact, two-thirds of rail freight originate here in rural America. What type of needs are you really hearing from our friends in the rail industry? Well, the, the rail industry, in, in contrast with, say, the barge industry or the or, you know, trucking, they, the rail industry is largely responsible for uh, financially underwriting the cost of, of their own 
network, the, the track, the locomotive power. Um, there's much less federal support for the rail industry than for surface transportation or for maritime transportation. So, you know, the railroads have done a, a commendable job over the past number of years in investing in their network. Uh, it's, it's a very capital intensive industry and the return on that investment can take many years to realize. So that, that degree of investment needs to be respected and commended. One of the, one of the challenges that, you know, sometimes there can be some, you know, friction between say agricultural shippers and the freight rail industry is because there's not a lot of options for agricultural shippers. If you are west of the Mississippi River, there's there's a couple of the Canadian rail companies that provide some service, but it's primarily two railroads, Union Pacific or Burlington Northern Santa Fe. And if you're if you're east of Chicago, um, your options are pretty much Norfolk Southern and CSX. Um, and so there's not a lot of competition within the rail industry. And I think one of the big reasons is because it's so capital intensive, you can't just, you don't see a lot of new ventures in the rail industry because it takes so much money to participate. But as a result, there can be often be a real friction between the customers and the rail providers in the form of pretty high rail rates, um, service that isn't as compatible with the needs of agricultural shippers as as is necessary so there's there's always been kind of this you know a bit of friction between between the two and that does continue um and so you know i don't paint it with a, a too broad of a brush because um, there's examples where it's working really well and there's other examples with a lot of frustration uh, among shippers so it, it is um an important mode of transportation for the success of of agriculture particularly providing a lot of that linkage between you know farmers in the western part of the corn and soybean belt like north and south dakota nebraska western minnesota kansas to export locations in the pacific northwest uh, that those movements occur by rail and um, so they're a very important part of our industry and will remain so uh, one of the things that agriculture continues to strive for making sure we have a good balance between the needs of the agricultural shippers and the needs of the rail providers and making sure it doesn't get too much out of balance. And I think speaking to that point in particular, it's not uncommon to see an oil train come through our territory here in the upper Midwest. I think back a few years ago when agriculture was really competing for space on those trains with the oil cars. Now, of course, with the, the issues globally in the oil market, that's kind of changed some. But that really uh, highlights a potential bottleneck for farmers and ranchers, doesn't it? It, it certainly can. And, and you know, really one of the, the big challenges with, um, you know, with the rail industry um, that I will certainly concede is so many of these industries and the economics behind these industries can change on a dime, but yet the infrastructure, these investment decisions for rail infrastructure, they require many years 
of planning and execution and then finally getting a positive return on that investment. So those that infrastructure is less able to turn on the dime that the economics of these industries can. You know, the oil markets fluctuate you know, pretty sizably. Agriculture can fluctuate based on whether weather is favorable or not, or whether what our you, what our government's trade policy is, or whether our de- other reasons where you know demands internationally or domestically can change significantly, those things turn on a dime. But yet you've got the infrastructure that doesn't, and so some you can have these short-term um, you know occasions where the two ends are not meeting, and you have this lack of equilibrium between the two and and it can cause problems and and certainly you know what we saw a number of years ago with a dramatic increase in oil production and transportation um and all of a sudden it created a a real competition between the movement of agricultural freight and the movement of of petroleum products and you know those things do indeed happen now of course Water traffic is a very valuable piece to this puzzle. We're blessed by having the mighty Mississippi here in this part of the country. Approximately 60% of all grain inspected is exported through the central Gulf down in Louisiana and Alabama, which, of course, you are very well aware. Uh, But to you, what type of advantages does having a river system like the Mississippi give U.S. farmers? It really is uh, an essential part of our success you know, other countries have navigable inland waterways with you know, river transportation. But what's so unique about the United States is our navigable waterways like the Mississippi River, the Ohio River, the Illinois River, the Arkansas River, they penetrate into the most productive farm ground arguably on the planet. And so a lot of, there are a lot of farmers located in the United States that again are, are located in the middle of the country, far removed from our coastal regions. But yet because it's a relatively short drive to any of these rivers and barge t- terminals that are located there, that they can have a real effective and compelling profitable market for their soybeans, corn, and other commodities. Um, not because necessarily what they, what they grow is superior to what's grown in other parts of the United States, uh, but just simply because they have access to this efficient maritime highway. And, you know, you know, one semi truck loaded of soybeans can handle about 900 bushels. Uh, one, one barge uh, can handle 55,000 bushels. And then you put 15 of those barges together for one flotilla or tow, which is pretty, pretty standard well over 800,000 bushels of soybeans in just that one 15 barge flotilla. A rail car can handle three to 4,000 bushels. And so if you have a hundred car, you know, train, you know, you're looking at 300 to 400,000 bushels. So, you know, obviously rail is very efficient as well, but nothing really beats the inland waterway system and barge transportation to be able to move that heavy commodity long distances at a very economical price point very it's it's integral to our success uh, for the international marketplace and of course the mississippi river is controlled by a series of locks and dams throughout and one thing that we are hearing is that that system is really becoming old and outdated what type of threat does this pose to river traffic and ultimately 
to the bottom line of farmers. Yeah, unfortunately, you know, we've allowed a number of these, you know, locks and dams to to be undercapitalized and they've they've degraded as a result. And it really is worrisome that you could have a unexpected failure at one of these particular sites. And what's important to keep in mind is you can you can do a sublime job at maintaining you know, 26 out of the 27 locks and dams on the upper Mississippi River between Minneapolis, St. Paul and St. Louis. So you could, you could do an exceptional job of maintaining an, 26 out of those seven. But if you simply have one of those that have an unexpected failure, particularly of a long, in a, of a long duration, your whole supply chain still effectively shuts down uh, because you are truly only as strong as your weakest link. And so one of the things that's been a real point of emphasis for agriculture for a number of years, and it's really um, gathered in intensity these last several years, is the need to really improve this system. You know, at times it means you may have to forego the perfect um, in order to just get the, the predictably good. And, and, you know, fortunately, we have seen some improvement on some of these at some of these facilities you know, most notably right now, five of the eight locks uh, on the Illinois River are receiving significant rehabilitation, will be completed in uh, late October of this year. And so we need to see more of that, though, um, you know, making sure that we're doing a good job of just maintaining these um, so that they're reliable. And that's going to be you know, really key. You know, the good news about locks and dams is it's a, it's an, an engineering technology or concept that has been pretty consistent for well over 200 years. Um, you have a concrete chamber, you've got gates and you've got valves that regulate water from one le water level to the next. And so the good news is if you do a good job of taking care of these assets and really prioritizing maintenance, you can continue to use these locks and dams for a considerable amount of time. And, but again, we just need to do a better job of taking care of things. You know, sometimes in this, in this country, we, we so fixate on the ribbon cutting moment, the, the, the grand opening um, that we neglect the routine maintenance that if you simply did a better job of that, um, you can just incre dramatically increase the useful life of these assets. You know, the problem is stewardship and maintenance, they don't generate the press release and the ceremony with all of the publicity. But, you know, again, if we live in a time where you've got limited resources, we have to have this kind of stewardship approach. I think one of the things about you know working for an organization that's funded by and led by farmers, farmers have a part of their brand ID, stewardship, um, making do with less, uh, finding new ways of achieving the result that doesn't necessarily nece caused by spending a lot of money, and so we think that approach is certainly successful on the farm. 
we think that approach is very applicable to when it comes to our infrastructure as well. Now, when our products uh, ultimately float down the Mississippi or they make it to a port out on the east or west coast, the final destination for a lot of those U.S. produced farm goods lies outside of our borders in foreign markets. Being that we live here in the upper Midwest, we're obviously not very close to very many domestic ports outside of maybe the Great Lakes. Are our ports in pretty good workable condition from your understanding it's again it's just not something that we really hear about here so it's not something we usually think about yeah you know it's something that you know we're continuing to really make improvements on um the pacific northwest you over the last 10 to 15 years has witnessed a substantial degree of investment in everything from deepening the Columbia River, which is between Washington State and Oregon, a lot of soybean and grain export terminals are located on that Columbia River before it empties into the Pacific Ocean. Uh, a lot of the export facilities themselves have uh, either increased capacity or on, on one occasion, a new export terminal was even built. Um, the rail industry has invested significant resources to provide greater linkage between these growing regions in western minnesota the dakotas nebraska etc to provide that effective linkage linkage to the pacific northwest from these growing areas so we've we've experienced a real significant amount of investment and a lot of that was due to the pronounced growth of demand especially for soybeans in china and in other countries in in asia so asia has become just a, a very dynamic customer for u.s soybeans and grain and so much of that investment is, was made as a result of that so that's something that we're continuing to promote to make sure we're making these additional investments and there's certainly opportunities for improvement in that area um, with the lower mississippi river which is our number one export region. The Pacific Northwest is our number two export region. Uh, we've, we're very pleased that the, the federal government is proceeding with a, a major project, which is deepening that lower stretch of the river near New Orleans from 45 feet to 50 feet. That will allow us to load at least 500,000 additional bushels of soybeans per vessel which just improves the economics of our of our exports when you when you have that additional capacity when you can load ships heavier because then you have less of a worry about it hitting the bottom of the river because you've deepened it further that's just a very important investment that is taking place uh, the project was officially kicked off at the end of July so that's something that we're very pleased with and that's something that soybean farmers have been really advocating for and really have have you know taken a leadership role in seeing that become a reality so the the condition of our ports is there still is significant need but we've had some success as of late but we just really need to continue to build on that momentum mike one aspect that i feel people really tend to overlook is the safety of international shipping routes much of that is made possible by the u.s navy basically patrolling all global waterways, or at least the major ones. 
do is there any increased competition for access to these shipping routes that you know of, or are there any potential threats that have been starting to develop in areas where the U.S. goods and services are being transported? It really just underscores the the importance of the U.S. Navy, just not just from a you know, people often think just from a national security perspective, but from just a global commerce perspective, because, you know, our our Navy has just done over the years an exceptional job of, you know, making sure that there is a safe playing field and supply chain for the global economy. Obviously, the U.S. is a major player in that and it's it's easy for the t- the american taxpayer to often regard you know our our spending on our military you know particularly the navy as the not really understanding well, what's in it for us um are we just you know helping make other countries more safe um and that the, it's much more complex than that um the ability for you know our industries, including agriculture, to be able to meet up with demand internationally. Uh, it's not just a function of having supply and it's not just a function of having demand. You have to have a, a route that is cost effective, reliable and safe in order to make it all happen. And the moment we start being negligent in this area, uh, we shouldn't be surprised if all of a sudden we're not so competitive in accessing some of these customers because all of a sudden they're having to take a different route because the the current route is not safe. And, you know, with, you know, a lot of our customers being based in Asia, which, um, you know, that region, you know, with, you know, this increased, you know, in many respects, tension with China, um, that's something that we really need to be mindful of. And, and so, uh, that's, you know, this, this playing field that's been established and helped, you know, and the integrity of it has been guaranteed, you know, by the U.S. Navy is, is very significant and, and uh, something that we should appreciate and something that we should really, as a country, you know, be very committed to. So we've talked about all these different aspects of transportation to really paint that picture to our listeners of where we're at. But it ultimately all leads to the simple question of what can be done about it. Now, you, you touched some on that, but where do we really go from here in solving our transportation issues? You know, when the decision was made to create the Soy Transportation Coalition in 2007, it was really in part motivated by um, the reality that when farmers get engaged in an issue, that issue tends to rise in importance. Um, among our policymakers, you know, even though there are fewer and fewer farmers every year, I mean, they're, you know, the efficiency of the industry is increasing. So a given farmer is, in, is producing more, but the actual number of farmers continues to diminish. Despite that, farmers still are very, um, they're a constituency with a lot of credibility. And so, you know, making sure that, that, we do an, uh, an increasingly effective job of talking about what these needs are. And I think uh, you know, one of the things I really try to do is, is, um, is tee up this discussion 
as not just being beneficial to farmers, but how it's beneficial to the broader economy. A question I often ask is, do we want to be a country that produces for the rest of the world, or do we want to be a country that simply consumes from the rest of the world? A lot of people who don't live in rural America who may have never been on a farm, they may not know a farmer. There still, nonetheless, is this aspiration for the United States to be a country that produces and makes things and agriculture being a, a very important component of that. You know, clearly, if we are going to be successful in that, though, we have to have the ability to grow the, those crops and we have to have demand for it, but we have to have that multimodal transportation system. So making sure that that perspective is really on the advance, um, but making sure that we've got some, that we're not just fixated on more money and, and greater taxpayer investment as beneficial as that is. Cause you know, the reality is, um, you know, I don't see a, a scenario in the future where we've got all of the money to do everything that we need. So we really need to make sure that we're leading on making the given amount of resources, the taxpayer dollars stretch further and embrace new innovative approaches. Uh, for providing an infrastructure that can meet our needs, but yet doesn't, may not be as expensive as it historically has been. So we have to be, we have to make sure that we're really embracing that innovation as well. And, um, you know, there's, there's a lot of good ideas that are just sitting on shelves, you know, collecting dust. And we need to make sure that we're, we're doing a good job of, raising awareness of those that we're improving the motivation to embrace them. And, um, that's something that's going to be applicable to each of the modes of transportation that farmers depend upon. Now you mentioned coalitions before the farm credit system is of course, partnering with fellow industry organizations with the rebuild rural campaign. How hopeful are you that we could see some action get taken to help alleviate our infrastructure issues from these coalition efforts? I think it was really, you know, important that we, we do, you know, work in conjunction with others. Um, you know, one of the things that, you know, I've learned uh, from interfacing with elected officials in Washington, D.C. is that for something to get done, it's not just a function of what is being suggested suggested but it's just as much a function of who is making that suggestion and how frequently that suggestion is being made so making sure that farm groups are working in more broadly without throughout agriculture but then you know extending beyond other industries beyond agriculture the more you can get some of these various industries singing off the same song sheet the better and you know usually when you see something monumental or consequential done in Washington, D.C., or even at the state level, it's usually because you've seen all of these effective organizations and industries em embracing a collaborative approach. So we're very hopeful that, you know, we can continue to see um, some important things getting done. You know, the big challenge um, is this looming election and and you know, if past is prologue, you tend to see politics overwhelm 
some of these important policies that need to be implemented and funding allocations that need to be made. So we're, we're hopeful that you know, things related to the surface, surface transportation can get done, but what will likely happen this year is they may have to do some extension of current law uh, once you get beyond the, the election. Uh, so things can kind of be maintained um, at their current level. So there's some of that that's going to take place. But again, I, I think there's been a, a, a real good some really good momentum lately farm credit being a real leader in this area to try to get all of these stakeholder groups you know really working together the reality is that there are fewer and fewer people that have a real understanding and appreciation for agriculture and so the more that agricultural interest interests can be united and the more they can work with other industries and organizations that'll certainly be to our benefit all right, Mike, and where can listeners go to find out more about your organization? Well, we would just encourage people to reach out to us at our website, soytransportation.org. Thank you very much for your insight today, Mike. It's been great having you on. Thank you for having me. That's Mike Steenhook, who serves as the executive director of the Soy Transportation Coalition. That's going to do it for us on this episode of the Rural Perspectives podcast, which is a production of Egg Country Farm Credit Services. To get more great content, please visit www.eggcountry.com. 